Wealth, luxury, comfort? Who wouldn't want these things? Hi, I'm Charles Morris, and thank you for joining me for another episode of The Great Stories Podcast. Today, I'm returning to one of our most listened to interviews of 2019 with Costi Hint, the nephew of a world-famous prosperity preacher. Costi grew up in the Word of Faith movement and believed it with all his heart. In a moment, you'll hear him talk about the life of luxury he lived then and how when he discovered the true gospel, it was easy to walk away from that lifestyle. It's a powerful interview, and I can't wait to share it with you. But I'd also like to mention that if you want to learn more about not only Costi Hinn's story, but also how the Word of Faith message contradicts Jesus and the true gospel, you should watch a documentary we have up on our website called American Gospel, Christ Alone. I'll share a link in the show notes. But for now, let's meet up with Costi Hinn. Welcome to Haven Today. I'm Charles Morris, and thank you so much for joining me. We're doing a program series this week that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. It's been too many years. I want us to talk about God. I want us to talk about greed. I want us to talk about the prosperity gospel. Wealth, luxury, comfort, these entice desperate millions to the promise of a prosperity gospel, the belief that God will do whatever they need with just a little more faith and a financial gift to boot. Well, I want to welcome for the very first time to the program somebody who's written a brand new book. His name is Costi Hinn. He's a pastor of a Bible church in Phoenix, Arizona. Costi, for the very first time, I just want to say welcome, brother, to the program. Thank you so much, Charles. It's an honor to be with you today. Well, it's it's good to get to know you. I wish you were not in Arizona and I wasn't all the way out on the West Coast. Your last name gives you away, and we'll get to that in a little bit, because people are already perking their ears up at uh, your last name, Hin. But I, I want you to talk to me about uh, just the prosperity gospel and your life. Tell me what you were raised in uh, as a Christian background, and then share with me how you met Jesus along the way in life. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm thankful now on this end of my life to be a pastor at a Bible church and to fall in line with many other faithful pastors and, and leaders and people who have been living for the gospel faithfully for, for decades upon end. But for me, it wasn't always that way. Um, I grew up in the center of the prosperity gospel and what some have called the, the word of faith movement. And it's the mm-hmm. type of belief system where Jesus does save us from our sins and we get the gospel, but it's kind of more like gospel plus where he did die to save your sins, but he also guarantees health, wealth, abundance, favor, and comfort for Christians. And in that type of world, suffering is not something you preach on or talk about. Uh, Sickness is something that is said to be guaranteed, paid for in the atonement. You have to be getting healed or else you don't have enough faith. And also the lifestyle Um, We would take John 10.10, where Jesus says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and life more abundantly. We would take that abundant Mm. life not to be merely some spiritual promise of eternity, but to actually be a physical promise that is an earthly and temporal one. And we were living 
the abundant life, quote unquote, you'd say, or as some have put it today, our best life now. We were living in mansions. We drove mm-hmm. Mercedes Benz vehicles, Bentleys, Maseratis. Um, I was driving a Hummer, rocking a $10,000 watch. I mean, we just lived like rock stars and rich athletes and celebrities. The, the main source of our income, though, was the donations of people. And we would solicit those donations by getting up on platforms around the world, uh, whether it be my father, my uncle, others, or eventually as I got older, I began to work within the ministry and I was the heir apparent, if you will, as the oldest nephew in the family. I was supposed to catch the mantle and step into this uh, role and it was constantly prophesied over me that I was next and I was going to have a global ministry and I was going to carry the mantle of my uncle and my father. And as we would do that, we would tell people, look at what God has done for us. Look at the way he's blessed us. It's because we have faith. It's because we understand these clear principles in scripture. And then we would actually use the Bible to sell the belief that God wants everybody to prosper, everybody to be wealthy. And if they're not, then the problem is they lack faith and they need to have more faith. Mm. Or mm. they're not giving and they're not believing, so they need, they need to give an offering to God. If you're listening to Haven Today right now, we are not condemning the charismatic movement. But what we are talking about is the prosperity gospel. Costi, you became a true born-again believer in Jesus Christ after you left the prosperity gospel movement. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, we had for some years uh, as a family been in different scenarios. And for me, one of those was playing baseball in college at a Baptist university because it was a great division one school. And I ended up there just to play baseball. I, I was not a Baptist. When I went, my family warned me and said, hey, you know, be careful. Don't let those Baptists brainwash you. They teach a solid word, but they <laughs> they don't believe in the power of God, and they don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, so just be careful. And so I went and told my parents, I will be careful, but I'm there to play baseball. And that's all I'm there for, so don't worry, guys. I'll be fine. Well, I roll onto campus in my big Hummer in Dallas, Texas, with my prosperity gospel lifestyle and my belief system, and there was a coach there. He never once judged me. He never once said, your uncle's that guy on TV and he's controversial or I think he's a false teacher. He never said a word. He simply treated me with respect and got to know me for me. And over the course of those years and that time at DBU, he began to talk to all of us players and me, of course, as part of that about God's attributes and his nature, about the gospel. And one time he talked about the sovereignty of God. And I thought, this is really strange because in my view, I'm, I can control God. God's kind of like a magic genie. And if I rub him right with enough faith or a big enough offering, he'll, he'll give me whatever I want. He'll grant my wishes. And my coach used to say, you know, Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Or he'd quote Proverbs 21.1 and say, the, the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And he would tell us, guys, God is in control. He controls kings. He can control scouts. He can control your future. Trust him. Stop trying to control every aspect of your life and trust him. You'll find peace in that. And he would preach these mini sermons. And I would always think, what in the world is he talking about? I'm the guy with the watch. Mm. I got Mm. the money. 
I got the family. We flew on private planes. We're staying in hotels upwards of $25,000 a night in Dubai at the Burj Al Arab, living like royalty. What does this little guy, Baptist coach, driving a a white Toyota Camry know about sovereignty? (laughs) I know how to get God to go to work for me. So that was my arrogance and the way that I viewed my beliefs in my life. Well, fast forward some years later, I am at a church that I would say we're, we're a little loose in our, our beliefs, our theology, and our methodology. So they, they didn't have an issue letting me on the staff, and I jump in. And then the Lord starts to turn our church around a little bit from being a little more wild about things and, and just kind of doing things to get people in the door. We were, we were quite the showman to preaching mm. the Bible. And if you're familiar and, and you know listening and you know about expository preaching or verse by verse through the Bible, helping people understand the Bible, we think, hey, we should do that. It was a crazy idea at the time for our church, but why not? So we go through this book study, and it's the book of John, and I'm up to preach one Sunday. We're in our little rotation, and I've got to preach John 5, 1 through 17. And it's, it's the healing at the Pool of Bethesda. And I'm thinking, I'm a hen. A healing. I got this nailed. Yes. So I go to study, and my pastor hands me a commentary, real conservative theologian guy who I never heard of him. And I'm thinking, okay, what a commentary, I guess, is helpful for seeing what the Greek let, words mean or Hebrew or whatever. And I don't know much, but I thought, okay, I'll keep that just in case. And my pastor says to me at the time, be very cautious and careful, pay close attention, and try to really see what the Bible is saying here. His name is, I call him Pastor Mm -hmm. Tony, Anthony Wood. He pastors a church there in Tustin. And I'm thinking, okay, so I start making observations of this text, and I see that Jesus approaches one man in a multitude of people. And I'm thinking, okay, that's really interesting. I always believe that it's always God's will to heal everybody. And Every time Jesus would heal, he's going to heal everybody. But for some reason, at this point, I see he heals. He goes for one guy. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Then I see later, John records Jesus saying, pick up your pallet and walk. Jesus just heals this man in a powerful, incredible way. And John records, immediately the man gets up. And I remembered, we used to heal kind of like a process. Or we'd say, hey, if God didn't heal you, just go on believing or go on giving. Or we would have really long services. And we would say we have to create an atmosphere for healing. So we'd have the anointed faith healer. We'd have the music, the choir, the show, and and try to get everybody to, to believe. And here Jesus, he just shows up at this pool and goes, rise and walk. And it, it's real power. So I'm thinking, mm. that's different. Mm. And then the one that got me, Charles, is this. The man goes off walking around with his pallet and those old stuck up religious Pharisees see him and they look at him and basically say, who told you you can pick up your pallet, walk around with it? It's the Sabbath day because they had all these other laws and burdens on people. You know, you can't do this, you can't do that, or that's working. So this guy says, well, the man who healed me told me I could. And then John says, because he didn't know who Jesus was. He just says, that guy who healed me. Mm. And Mm. it clicks in my mind. This guy didn't know who Jesus was. So I go and I start looking up words and I see that the word actually means he didn't even perceive who Jesus was. So now he doesn't even have a clue. And I start thinking, how in the world did he get healed if he didn't know who Jesus was? That means he didn't even have Mm. enough faith to get healed. You have to have faith to get healed. And so... Mm confused but very intrigued now looking back being led by the holy spirit in study 
I grab this commentary and this commentator says, you know, here is an example of the sovereignty of Christ and his power in action. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that's what my coach used to talk about. And he said, here this man did nothing to deserve healing. He gave no money. He had no money. He had no power. He had no merit. The grace of God poured out. Christ in his sovereign power and authority, sees this man, has compassion, and heals him. And I thought, oh my mm. goodness, that is so different. That That's the truth. It, it looks like the truth. And so then the commentator unfolds that more and says, the cruelest lie of faith healers today is that the people that don't get healed are guilty of unbelief, negative confession, not giving a big enough offering, and that they're doing something wrong, and the control is all on people, and God really is just the puppet, essentially, and we're the puppet master. And I'm sitting there, and Charles, I start crying because hmm. that was an indictment on me. That's what I believe. That's what I preached. That's what my father and my uncle, our family, was most known for, and we got rich off it. And we were bankrolling on it. And here I am sitting in that office and I'm crying and I start repenting. I told the Lord, I'm sorry for everything I was ever a part of. I was so blind. And I vowed in that moment to preach the true gospel, to study the word of God, to see what else God has to say. That was a domino effect. And eventually Mm. I came to realize that are there times in the New Testament that we see Jesus heal because of faith or he's moved with compassion because people have faith? Of course, the woman with the issue of blood crawling through the street, yes. grabbing yes. the hem of his garment. He is moved by the faith and the passion of people. But guess what? There's other times where having no faith at all and no merit at all, he simply heals. And that's the beauty. You can't control Jesus or turn his healing mm. ministry into a formula or especially, like the prosperity gospel does, a get-rich formula where we're guaranteeing things that God never guaranteed until heaven, which, believe me, in the atonement, Isaiah 53 is so clear. He, he did pay for our sin. He paid for no more sickness. He paid for no more tears and pain. But much of that is fully realized in glory. But here on earth, we're going to mm, suffer. Yes. We're going to go through pain. That's why there's passages like James 1, 2, that we're supposed to count it all joy. Our faith is tested, but we cling to Christ. And so I'll, I'll end by saying this. If you have everything, but you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. But if you have nothing and you have Jesus, you have everything. That's what Paul was mm. talking about when he said to live is Christ, to die is gain. I count all things loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I experienced that moment. And while I love my family and my heart breaks for the lost and I want to reach people, no doubt, um, I never want to compromise the truth of the gospel again. That was great, Costi. Thank you. But there's one thing that I believe leads more people to the prosperity gospel more than anything else, and that's sickness. But not only your own sickness, but maybe sickness that comes from someone you love, like a child. And my heart goes out to people. And I would say there are those of us in the Christian world who don't pray for the sick. How do we get it wrong? How can we get it right? Well, it's a great question and a topic that we need to analyze biblically. We don't want to swing to either extreme. We, first of all, don't want to avoid praying for the sick and hold this theological idea that God does nothing, that he's just the the cosmic man up in the sky, he said it and forget it, 
and we just got to work it out here on earth. We don't want to view God as not being a healer because he is a healer. We don't want to view God as not performing miracles or being a supernatural God because he is a supernatural God. That's his nature. So we don't want to swing to that extreme. But we also want to be careful swinging to this other extreme, which is God always heals everybody. And it's always his will to heal everybody on earth. And if you just believe it and you just claim it by faith, he'll do it. And the reason you're not healed is you don't have enough faith. That would be the other extreme as well. And when you just look at two things, not only what the Bible says, but what we see in our world today, you see two clear things. In the Bible, There are many people who are healed, and God heals them. Christ heals them in love and compassion, sovereignly and in power. That is a beautiful picture of healing. Christ is a healer. We also see, though, that many throughout the New Testament church are sick. They're suffering. They're going through hard times. And to them, the Bible says, trust, follow, endure, pass the test. The Lord is near. He's with you. His greater eternal plan is going to be so far beyond what you're experiencing in this temporal moment of suffering. And Peter's readers often were going through suffering, and he talks a great deal about that. Paul, a wonderful man of God, an apostle, an example to all of us, beaten, suffering, imprisoned, ultimately killed. That's the picture of suffering. And then when you look at our world today, we see some of the most incredible men and women of God. I think of women like Johnny Erickson Tata who the Lord has used mightily in her suffering. She's not been healed while others have been, and God is working through it all. So the the way to pray and the way to approach healing is saying, God, I come as a child. You're the Father. You know best. I'm asking for this, and I'm trusting your will to be done, knowing that the promises that are paid for by the cross and through the atonement are fully realized in eternity, that some things are experienced now, but ultimately, no more sickness, no more pain, no more death, no more tears is the promise of eternity. That's why we are hopeful as Christians, never trading our 70 years on earth uh, for our eternity. We are focused on infinite glory and joy in heaven. The, the prosperity gospel movement is growing all over the world, and it seems to be growing the fastest where people have the least. And how do you reconcile that? How do you talk about that? Uh, you know, where's the Lord in all this, Costi? Well, it's a heartbreaking reality, and I think it ought to do two things. It ought to ignite our passion to get the gospel out and to defend the faith and to stand for truth, to do what Jude says, though it might be uncomfortable. There in the beginning of the letter that Jude writes in the New Testament, he basically says, I really wanted to write to you about our common faith. I wanted to write to you about the good stuff. But I have found now that it is urgent and it is important that I tell you, you've got to contend for the faith. So I think on one hand, when we see the heartbreak internationally, what many faithful preachers and missionaries have called the number one U.S. export, which is the prosperity gospel to Africa and beyond, when we see that, we should be ignited with a passion for truth, not to rail on all the prosperity preachers and just name names to get hits online, but to actually go and speak the truth, number one. But number two, it should also cause us to realize that 
people are being deceived around the world and they are raising these teachers up in accordance with their own desires. That's what Paul told Timothy would happen. There are many people who are desperate for a message of health and wealth because they're impoverished, they're broken, and we need to tell them not only the truth of the gospel, but the truth about Christ, that he's near them in those moments, the truth about heaven, the eternity of heaven. I don't know about you, but in the old days, even in the prosperity gospel, there were moments where we heard preaching about heaven and about eternity. And we need to bring some of those days back where the church focuses on eternity and people in dire earthly circumstances are reminded, like the church that Paul wrote to, First and Second Thessalonians, two great letters. He says, you can have hope. You don't need to worry. Death is not the end for the believer. It's just the beginning. Our infinite home in heaven is far beyond this earth. We've got to go internationally and across the world to tell people that message. And I have found this, Charles, that there are so many who when they find Christ and they get saved, they can live in a a dirt hut. They could have nothing. But if they have Christ, they have more joy than some of the people here in America who have everything. And that's because even when you have nothing, if you have Christ, you have everything. Costi, in Arizona, where you're a pastor of a Bible church, uh, let's talk about how you handle Scripture. And in the prosperity gospel uh, movement, there is a theology of handling Scripture. How is that good or bad, true or false? Yeah, when we look at New Testament principles of giving, we see certain principles that are used by the prosperity gospel and then taken much too far. For example, uh, you see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul unpacked the beautiful picture of generosity, uh, literally the mandated responsibility of the church to be givers, to be generous, to be pouring into one another. Uh, And he's literally, he is talking about money. And so it's important to see that generosity is biblical We do want to acknowledge that throughout the New Testament picture, we see the Lord Jesus as he builds his church, uh, blessing those who give with more to give. We're blessed to be a blessing. I think that's a very biblical principle. We see Paul teach Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 that the rich are to be instructed, instructed to be rich in good works. So there are going to be wealthy people who the Lord blesses in tremendous ways, but they are to be givers and gospel patrons. And as the Lord pours into their left hand, so to speak, they need to be pouring out with their right hand like an ecosystem of generosity. The prosperity gospel takes that and makes it all about you. If you give to God, he'll do this for you. If you give to God, he'll bless you if you give. And it becomes more like rubbing the cosmic banker right, so to speak, than it does about being generous and not expecting God has to do all these things for me, but I'm giving because I want to do more for his kingdom. Costi, Hen, all who call ourselves Christians believe that the Bible is important to us. Uh, It's a rule of faith. It's a rule of life for us. But sometimes you point out in your book that Scripture can be taken out of context and not in context. Like a verse you mentioned, John 14, 4, quoting Jesus, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 
Does that mean if I want a brand new car or I want a brand new house with a swimming pool on the ocean, I can get it if I just ask for it in the name of Jesus? That's a great question. The answer is no, (laughs) because we have to ask certain questions about the Bible. Uh, It's important as students of the Bible to understand the context. What does this passage mean? Not always asking, what does this mean to me? Because it really doesn't matter up front what it means to me. I need to know what it means, period. And then I can apply it to me. I can apply it to my life. Take, for example, the idea that we pray in Jesus' name. This has been taken in the prosperity gospel to be a a sort of abracadabra magic statement where I'm believing God for a Bentley in Jesus' name. I'm believing God for that job promotion in Jesus' name. And when we understand what it means to pray in Jesus' name, we actually do see that no, that doesn't mean you can pray a Bentley onto your driveway in Jesus' name. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in alignment with, in accordance with, in light of the nature of Jesus. If I bear my last name, I'm bearing all the rights and all the privileges and all the understandings of that family. And nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say, when you bear his name and use his name, he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and rich. But there are many wonderful promises that he does say will come true. For example, you could ask, is it God's will to save lost people? The answer is unequivocally yes. Is it God's will that we bear one another's burdens? Of course. Is it God's will that he builds his church? Of course, Jesus promised to do that. So we want to really pray in Jesus' name by saying, Lord, you promised in your word this very specifically, and I ask for it in Jesus' name, which is in accordance with your will. Last point on that, Charles, would be this. Jesus praying in the garden. He's getting ready to go to the cross. The the agony he's sensing, so deep, so intense that his sweat drops are turning to blood. And he actually pours out his heart to the Father saying, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And then what does he say? But not my will, but yours be done. That's the way to pray in Jesus' name. Jesus, I want to pray this according to your will. If you will it, let it be. I'm coming as a child. I'm asking you as my king and my father, let it be done according to your will in Jesus' name. It's to pray in accordance with the nature and the will of. And unfortunately, for many of us, that's not going to mean health and wealth. Can you just pray that more people, even listening today to the program would understand and would find the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would find grace in their lives for the first time. Absolutely. I'd, I'd be more than happy to do that. Let's, let's go to the Lord right now. Father, we come to you together, uh, Charles and I, uh, the team there, and listeners, and we ask for your mercy and your grace to pour out upon people's hearts. You are the author of salvation. And so often you use men as the ministers of your gospel and salvation. So we ask a a twofold prayer. One, that you would move in people's hearts with power the way only you can. And that your Holy Spirit would, would deeply convict those who are caught in sin and are being led astray by the enemy. And he would call them home to you. And we also pray that conviction would settle on our own hearts, that we would never be pompous and and so pharisaic and spiritually high in our own minds that we would forget the way we once were. 
that you would call us all with conviction to be missionaries every day, to take the gospel to the people who need it the most. And we would live what the author of Jude writes about, having mercy on people and trying to snatch them from the fire, literally holding the rope, extending it, and trying to rescue souls. Keep us in the truth, faithfully submitting to your Holy Spirit, and bold for the gospel and for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Costi Hinn. Wow. And in case nobody's figured it out, your uncle is Uncle Benny, Benny Hinn, who is probably the most well-known proponent of the prosperity gospel in the world today. Thank you again for sharing with us here on the program. Thank you so much for having me, Charles. I really appreciate you. Thank you for joining us on Great Stories with Charles Morris. I truly enjoyed that time with Costi Hinn and how the Lord has been at work in his life. When we first had him on our program, his parents and famous uncle listened, and this opened up more opportunity for him to share with them about the true gospel. Let's keep praying for them as well as for Costi. Again, if you're interested in learning more about this movement, I'd like to invite you to look for our link about the documentary called American Gospel, Christ Alone in the show notes. And please also visit our website and you can sign up for our weekly email that'll keep you up to date with each new episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the service you use to listen to. Links are in the show notes. Thanks for joining me today for Great Stories with Charles Morris. Thank you.